A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 167 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a grand moth holding Vader's leash, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. There's a dominatrix joke in there somewhere. (laughs) And joining us again this week, the host of the Star Wars Report's original Rebels Roundtable, Jonathan Brenner. Hey guys, glad to be back, and it's nice to know that you like me. You really like me. Yeah, we brought you back. I mean, that, that's always a sign, right? Like, hey. Uh, that's right, folks. This is another of these sort of crossover episodes for us. Just like we did with A New Dawn, we've run into a topic that, because of the prominence now of Wilhuff Tarkin in Rebels, makes the Tarkin novel, this episode's subject, Something that is probably relevant to both listeners of Star Wars Beyond the Films and also of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Probably less so for Rebels Roundtable listeners because it is just focusing in on Tarkin himself, but we reference it often enough. We figured this is a great time to have Jonathan come back in, sort of make this a crossover between the two shows, and release this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films in both feeds as we did with A New Dawn. So once again, just like with our A New Dawn episode, if you are a listener of Rebels Roundtable and getting this episode through that feed, never fear, you're not missing a regular episode of Rebels Roundtable for this. This is sort of a bonus feature, crossing over from one feed to the other. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we steal a look at James Lucino's first book set in the new canon, Star Wars Tarkin. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. And as usual lately, a bit of context here, time-wise. We are talking about a novel that takes place five years after the events of Revenge of the Sith. That puts it ten years prior to the episodes of Rebels, in which Tarkin is now appearing. This also puts it three years prior to the events of A New Dawn, which we previously covered, making it the earliest current novel in the storyline that we now know of as the story group's canon, although, of course, that will be a distinction eventually replaced by Dark Disciple when that arrives. But five years after Revenge of the Sith here. Man, one of the things that's really driving me nuts about the books of this new canon is that there's no character 
sheet at the beginning, the uh, character personas or dramatis personas, whatever they call it. I have always kind of come to rely on that as I get deeper into the story, especially in times where I have to set the book down and then come back to it later. Sometimes I'm like, oh, wait, who is that one character? You know, there'll be like side characters and stuff like that, that that might be on a ship or something like that with the rebels or with the Imperials. And and flipping back to that is helpful. And these books have not had that. That's been one of my biggest complaints. And it's a minor one. So that that's one good thing. But moving into new canon, I, I found this book was a fun little I don't know, expansion of what we thought we knew. You know, I mean, when it was all over, it was one of those books where I was like, okay, it it gave me a lot of insight into Tarkin, a lot of insight into Vader, a lot of what's going on with the Empire and how the public is perceiving things. In that regard, I liked it. Uh, You know, when I think about, you know, books from Legends, uh, you know, the last few Waiting for Sword of the Jedi, those kind of stories, it didn't have that kind of excitement that I was looking for. But the action was there enough, and it was more about what was going on between Vader and Tarkin. It was definitely a character-driven story for me. Uh, I don't know about you guys. Jonathan, what do you think? Well, you know, it's funny. We do call this the new canon, but as I read this, there was so much drawn from Lucino's previous work. We had things from Cloak of Deception. We had things from Darth Plagueis. We had things from uh, Dark Lord, Labyrinth of Evil. There was so much reference there. Hey, he even went back and referenced Admiral Screed from the Droid series. So this this really didn't feel like new canon to me. It felt like kind of a continuation. And maybe that's because he was writing it before he knew it was going to be new canon. Mm -hmm. But overall, I feel the story, while it expanded Tarkin, I don't necessarily think for me it necessarily added anything to the character yeah we knew he was you know heartless we knew he was he was cold it did kind of clean up some of the things that previous i guess stories in legends established you know when was he a, a governor when was he a lieutenant governor when was he a captain when was he an admiral i mean all these things and it was kind of like if you looked at the old timeline he was always hopping around having different jobs and this this story did a nice a nice job of streamlining that and kind of going through and retconning and making it all make sense, which I kind of liked. But, oh man, I got to say that the, the thing that I came out of this novel thinking was, damn, it must suck to grow up in the Tarkin household. <laughs> I got to agree on most points with Jonathan here as far as, as the takeaway of the book. I actually really enjoyed reading the book. I actually really enjoyed taking the notes on it for the Star Wars Timeline Gold because there was tons of stuff that I could use because these were all first references to things in this canon. And I really enjoyed the reread of it or the re-skim through it as I was summarizing it and sort of putting all the pieces together. But I think it's because I'm such a continuity and chronological, uh, chronologically oriented fan. I'm not sure how well this stands up as an entertaining Star Wars adventure in and of itself. But in that sense, it's a lot like the Darth Plagueis novel. In both cases, you have a story that focuses around the development, backstory, and getting hints of the machinations of one or two main characters. And in broad strokes, that works. But when you get down to the question of, okay, well, for instance, who is the bad guy? Who are we supposed to be rooting for? And who are the antagonists of the story? Well, in both cases, we're essentially asked to root for the villain, someone we're traditionally thinking of as a villain, in this case Tarkin, in that case it was Plagueis and Palpatine. 
Uh, when it comes down to the question of who's the enemy, well, unless in that book you thought of it as Plagueis versus Palpatine and vice versa, it was always just sort of the little situational enemies rather than one big one throughout the book. And in this case, we've got one set of antagonists for Tarkin throughout the book, but they don't get a lot of fleshing out. They are extremely cookie-cutter and sort of barely there. It's like they just need to be there to give Tarkin something to deal with as a problem as opposed to being really fleshed-out characters in their own right. Not characters you'd ever want to see again, not characters whose background you really give a crap about. They're just kind of there. I mean, they're like, almost like the faceless stormtroopers that are in any episode of Rebels. You really don't care what happens with that particular stormtrooper. They're just there to provide a challenge for our heroes to go up against. Uh, I know we're going to get some crap probably because we've had the term new canon pop up here. Again, there's there's got to be a good way to refer to this other than just saying canon. Because for so long, the term canon has been used in different ways with Star Wars and the different tiered system eventually. Uh, I call it story group canon. Sometimes it's referred to as Disney canon, sometimes new canon. They're like, well, it's not new canon. They just took the stuff that wasn't canon and dumped it, and now they're making more canon. Whatever you want to call it, we're talking canon with a capital C. It's part of this continuity that's building around the new stuff and the core stuff that got carried over. Uh, Jonathan said it well, though, that basically this streamlines a lot of stuff. The Lucinopedia, as we call them, Lucino goes through and uses a lot of reference to different places, different vehicle types, uh, characters like Armand Icehard, who wind up essentially getting their place set as existing in this continuity. What I found was that this, as Jonathan said, very much streamlined the storyline of Tarkin. Tarkin was always a character that was picked up in early stories because he was one of the few major characters in A New Hope that didn't wind up continuing on into further adventures. So there was always these sort of backstory bits that we would get in flashbacks or we'd find out about his wife or his brother and all these others. You know, Gideon, uh, uh, even going up to Darth Vader and the Lost Command, we got a previously unknown son of Tarkin just thrown into that story. So his family ties and who he's around have always been sort of haphazardly created, retconned to fit it all together. Same thing with his ranks and where he was working. Was he a governor? Was he with the Outland Region Security Force? Was he with the Republic? Was he with the Empire? Well, when was he a lieutenant governor and all this stuff? Finally, this book takes that and streamlines it down. But I would say it goes even further in that it also seems to be streamlining the Death Star. Remember all those conflicting stories about how the Death Star got made and how the novel Death Star was supposed to come in and make it all make sense and didn't even remotely fulfill that promise? Now they've got an opportunity to do that for this canon that doesn't have to take into account all those different legends, continuity references, and such. So this book gives us things like Rampart Station, Desolation Station, the building at Geonosis before the sublight engines come online, and bit by bit, we are getting a more coherent backstory, not just of Tarkin, but of the Death Star as we go. But that's the big thrust of this book. It is a backstory of Tarkin and the Death Star, giving us tons of details and tons of cool uh, insights, particularly into Tarkin. But is it a grand Star Wars adventure? No. Is it a must-read book? No. We've yet to have a big, bombastic, epic novel in this new canon. And we've yet, including this one, to have an essential novel in this new canon. We're still waiting on it. So pick it up and read it. I think you'll enjoy it. But it's still not quite what I think we're expecting of this new canon yet. 
Mm-hmm. Excellent assessment there. I, you know, the thing about the Death Star, that was one of those little subplots that I didn't really consider much when I was reading it and, and rereading it. Uh, I, I like the fact that when it ends, you know, you mentioned them going to, to sublight and they jump out in the Death Star. And I thought that was kind of neat because it was like, oh, they, you could easily go into a Death Star book and make that the sequel to this if you wanted to. I was doing this one in audiobook. Uh, you know, I made that jump to more audiobooks now that I'm walking to and from work more. Uh, and this one was not Mark Thompson that done, uh, did it. It was Ewan Morton. And I think for me, I think that was probably one of the bigger turnoffs for me for the story in general was because it wasn't done by Mark Thompson. Ewan did a decent enough job. Nailed, he nailed Tarkin, uh, but he used so many different accents that at times it was really hard to follow around because sometimes he had a narrator voice. Then sometimes he had a Tarkin's internal narrator voice. And then he had this Imperial narrator voice that sounded like Tarkin. Uh, and then he did Darth Vader that didn't sound like Vader at all. Palpatine didn't really sound like Palpatine. So I, I had some serious issue with that because there were times where I was like, wait, what's going on? And in the audiobook, it's a little harder to just stop what you're doing. I mean, you got to open up the app, go in, rewind it a little bit and try not to go too far. So there was that angle that was really conflicting with me as I was going. So I had to deal with that. But I think, Nate, you really hit it when you said this one's really an essential read. I, I found it was more an interesting read. You know, I mean, coming from the standpoint of being a legend fan first, what comes now is very interesting to me. So, so learning what did come across, you know, that, that like characters like state Pistach or, or however you say his last name made it across, you know, the, the locations, the planets, uh, you know, Mercury. I, and that's another one of those things like, you know, there were references to things that I was like, are these supposed to be references of events from other books? Like I, I get that if there are events from legends books that are being referenced, that book does not become, new canon stuff you know those events may have happened uh but but it was interesting that lucina was doing that to the degree he was and i i was i was very curious from your standpoint nathan as a timeliner you know how many events and things like that were he referencing and so as we get into the spoiler stuff you know if there are specifics where you know james was actually referencing a battle from this book and stuff man throw it out there because i was very curious if some of that stuff was slipping over my head a lot we should probably clarify, I guess, uh, and, and I, I agree, there's a ton of things he's referencing. Nam Karayos from, gosh, was that Planet of Twilight getting referenced here? Um, a reference to Vader going after a Black Sun leader on Mercana at one point. Just a lot of references to previous types of events. But uh, as Mark was saying, there's sort of the ground rule here. There's a couple ways you could look at this. You could look at this as, uh, essentially, this is all one universe, and everything we knew from the Legends continuity is all just you know, made-up stories, and some of them might have kernels of truth. Well, in that case, if something in a legend turns out to have a piece of truth, that doesn't mean the entire legend becomes true. There's all kinds of legendary tales about mythical events being done by, you know, people like Alexander the Great, but, you know, he was a real man, but some of the stuff they say he did, of course he didn't. That was built up to build his image and such as we go. Um, So it doesn't necessarily mean the entire story gets pulled in. You can also look at this in terms of essentially two continuities, or in that sense, parallel universes. Just because there is a me who's a teacher in a parallel universe who taught for years at Creekside High School in Fairburn, Georgia, doesn't necessarily mean that as those continuities go on, that in both continuities, that me wound up leaving for Fulton Virtual School. There may be a continuity in which everything is the same up to a point, but then there are differences after the other, or 
the same me, different eye color, right? The, the idea that something is referenced does not automatically pull it over. It's the same type of rule we were dealing with back when you'd have apocryphal tales being told in, say, Star Wars Tales, and the question of, well, does something being similar to something we see elsewhere bring that entire tale in? Does it bring the entire issue in and how they had to deal with it back then? Same issue, just different continuities we're dealing with this time. Jonathan, from the standpoint of, I think we both kind of hit, Mark and I have hit this idea that this isn't big, it's not essential, it's not epic, but a good read. Would you agree on that take, or is this finally something that's starting to give us some essential bits that we need for the new continuity? Well, you know, it's really kind of hard to pin that down. I suppose for me, it really depends on where they take Tarkin in regards to his role on the Rebels animated series as how much this bears. Because we do learn a lot about Tarkin. We learn a lot about, I guess, what molded him, some of the experiences and his upbringing that really caused him to develop this idea that people are ruled through fear. People are ruled by basically you you take them down and you show that you either listen or you die. And that's the only way to control. That's the only way to have order. But the one thing that I got from this novel that I don't think I've ever gotten from anything else with Tarkin in it, and you guys tell me what you think, is that all the other times, I kind of interpret Tarkin as, well, frankly, a bastard. Somebody who, you know, he was in it for his own glory. He was in it for his own self-importance that he, you know, maybe he even at some point had designs on running the empire. And here you didn't get that. You almost got the sense that the way he was doing things or the reason he was doing things is because he saw this as the greater good, that this rule through fear, this Tarkin doctrine that we've talked so much about in all these different places and has been referenced like just a myriad of times is actually the way he was taught to to rule things. You know, his experiences on Ariadu and the Carrion Plateau really kind of molded this person who to make things strong, to make things safe, you had to take this really extreme approach. And I guess maybe it made Tarkin a little less evil for me, if that makes sense. I mean, he really is kind of the hero of this book, almost an anti-hero, but it, it's, it's just odd. It, there, there's some serious role reversals going on throughout the characters in this book, and I find myself wondering, you know, and Nathan is the history teacher, you can really appreciate this, you know, the antagonists in this book are former Republic loyalists who feel that they have been taken advantage of or tossed aside or cast aside. And, and what do they become? They become terrorists, but they're rebels at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's this sort of weird balance. The characters that we would be rooting for in other books are now, as you said, the bad guys. That's the old saying, right? One man's Freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, or vice versa. I always found it interesting that the way that it was played up in the prequel era, uh, and the prequel storytelling, at least in the Legends era, was this idea, essentially, that what you really have was that the, the Republic's going to become the Empire, 
which means by default, the Confederacy, those who were standing up against it and trying to leave its corruption, will eventually be where the rebellion springs from. But then you also have these little side things like you've got these small splinter rebel groups versus the Confederacy, like what we got in uh, the Onderon arc in the Clone Wars. And it's always felt like it needed to be more complex than just saying what was often said about, well, the Confederacy must become where the rebels spring from, that instead you're going to have anyone who's willing to stand up against the Empire being thought of as a rebel group, like these people are, these Republic loyalists who want the old version of the Republic back, which in a lot of ways, that was kind of what the rebels were always presented as prior to the prequel era. Before we knew anything about the existence of a confederacy that was trying to leave the Republic or anything like that, it was always this idea that they're the alliance to restore the Republic. They want to bring back what was good about this old system that was corrupted. I do agree that it's it changes the way we viewed Tarkin, but I think it changes him for the better. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the old thing about how, you know, the best villains always think they're doing the right thing. And in a lot of ways, Tarkin never got that level of depth in the Legends continuity. It was always sort of about power and control, and he sort of epitomized all the stereotypical things we expect to see in the Empire. In fact, essentially, he was sort of the model that other characters in the Empire were based on as far as their view of control and all that. Here, we have something much more akin to Anakin, which again goes into this idea of why Palpatine would want to put the two of them together, because as they found in the Clone Wars, they have different views on some things, but they're not nearly as apart in their views than they like to think. The only thing keeping them apart, at least for a long time here, referenced in this book, is the fact that Anakin and he never saw eye to eye after the trial of Ahsoka, where Tarkin was the prosecutor. To have Tarkin be someone who is, in a sense, thinking of himself as the good guy, bringing order, it's much more like almost like the Templar versus Assassin's conflict in the Assassin's Creed saga and things like that, where it's it's not about, or, or take the Shadows versus uh, the Vorlons in Babylon 5. It's not necessarily a question of good or evil. It's order versus chaos. It's free choice versus order. It's Anakin sitting there, you know, on Naboo with Padme teasing her about how someone should come together and force them to do the right thing. Someone wise. And hey, if it works, she says he was teasing and he laughs, but it certainly seems to actually fit what Anakin winds up doing later. I like that about Tarkin, giving him that depth. And the twist on the Tarkin doctrine is awesome. The Tarkin doctrine has always been sort of expressed as this idea of rule by force and fear of force. Fear will keep the local systems in line and so forth. And it's always thought of as sort of a measure of control and, ooh, how evil using force and violence to get what you want. It's a dictatorship. But the way it's presented here, when he's talking about the Tarkin Doctrine, when he's giving the speech that creates the Tarkin Doctrine, first of all, it's a speech and a publicly known idea, which I thought was pretty cool. Instead of it just being the Tarkin Doctrine is a hush-hush, only imperial thing that you use force, because of course you don't say we're going to use fear to control you to the populace or they might rebel. But here he's putting a spin on it and basically saying that the growing imperial military that's out there is a force for creating a pacified and prosperous galaxy rather than steps toward galactic domination, right? Rule by force and fear of force to create peace, which we've seen countless times in real history. It may be for a dictatorship, or you could think of it as something where you've got a republic that just happens to have a strong police force and strong military for 
protection and enforcement of rule of law and so forth. Uh, it really takes Tarkin and A, makes him more believable, but B, also I think makes it so that he, what he does seems more justified and it makes more sense of why it would have been accepted, why somebody who was always portrayed as so evil wouldn't just be tossed out on his butt because of how evil he is by anyone but Palpatine and Vader. He's more subtle in his evil than that. But see, the thing is, is that honestly, it goes back to he doesn't view himself as evil. He feels that the idea of a dictatorship is actually, you know, a measure of efficiency. He makes the point mm -hmm. that there are too many cooks in the kitchen. And you've got to think that this is a galaxy that's coming out of, they, they call it the, a, a civil war, that there were so many sort of personal interest groups going on in the Senate that you know the the core worlds were were trying to take advantage of the outer rim systems and that everybody was out for him, themselves and he sees the new order as just that a new order a new way of doing things a new way to make sure that everybody is treated equally that everybody gets what you know what they need and that nobody is taken advantage of and honestly it 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 makes him more likable and it makes him, as you said, Nathan, more believable as as a character. But mm -hmm. jumping back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, and kind of going to your one of your original questions to me, Nathan, about you know, is does this become essential reading? I have another question for you. Is there essential reading that you need to read this? Because I found myself kind of referencing back to all those earlier, especially Lucino novels, and I'm, I, I found myself wondering, if I was jumping in at this point, if I had just read A New Dawn and now I was just reading Tarkin, would I understand everything that was going on because of how much referencing he does? Personally, I think that you would understand it because I, I, mean, I went into this with the mindset that none of what previously was in the Legends continuity applies anymore. You know, so if there's a reference to an event or to a place, it can only be thought of in the vacuum of this new continuity. There isn't that new, that old universe of stuff surrounding it in that sense. So I think it's very heavy on references, but I'm not sure if the references really reference anything. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of references to places and concepts, and from time to time, reference to events that are very vague references, of course, because those events may not play out the same way as we saw in the Legends continuity. But that's just sort of Lucino's style. I'm not sure that it's something where it turns any of those references into a necessity. Like, you don't need to know what's going on in Namcharios to get the addition here. You don't need to know who, Ar who Armand Icehart is in the Legends continuity or uh, Grigiatis or any of these people in order to get what's going on here. You don't need to know necessarily about a previous mission for Vader to Mercana, barring the little tiny bits that they mention here, like going after the Black Sun guy in order to understand, okay, well, he's been here before, so there is a tie to him there, which is the way it's used here. I did. I don't see the type of connective requirement there. Yeah. Before I toss it over to Mark, on the reference to the whole idea of, you know, he sees the new order and that control as a new way of doing things and getting this out of a period of, of turmoil. So, basically, hope and change? Tarkin should run for the Democrats? I'm kidding. No, it's 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 really Obama and Bush who basically tried to pull that same kind of crap, but that's beside the point, just so that we can piss off both political sides of our listenership at the same time. 
<laughs> Batting a thousand. You know, Jonathan, I, I think that the references are really only there for the old EU readers. I, I think, you know, learning that his name stayed the same was something I was like, oh, okay, because I was like Nathan. I went into this going, okay, everything is up in the air. Everything could be new. He could have a totally new name. I got to be okay with this because it's a new canon. Uh, but then when you see the names of planets and things like that, references to locations and stuff, uh, granted, some of the actual specifics of what happened on those locations, I don't know if any of that was being referenced. But just knowing that the names were coming over, that the ship styles were coming over, those things, it was nice as a Legends fan to know that these things were making that jump. You know, I've I've commented on our Facebook page about, you know, I'd like to see characters make the jump in name. I know there are other Beyonders out there that would absolutely hate that. Uh, but for me, I, I named my kid Jaina, you know, and there's no Jaina in canon at this moment. So give me a Jaina at this point so I can at least still say my kid's name is a Star Wars name that isn't just only in Star Wars Legends. You know, I mean, so I think that that's where all those are coming from. Tarkin as a character, I think, Nathan, you were the one that said it, uh, or maybe both of you guys. The fact that he's more likable throughout this book. I think that was the one thing that really jumped out for me because when I first heard a book about Tarkin coming out, I'm like, he's already dead. You know, I mean, I'm that kind of reader that I'm, I like the, the, the now, you know, I was always into what's happening to Luke now, you know? So if we had a book that was set post new Jedi order and then we go back to Mindar or Mindor or whatever the heck it was called when we go to the shadows of Mindor with Luke. I didn't really care to go back because it was like that was a step in the wrong direction. So when I first heard about Tarkin, I was like, I don't know if I want to go back. Uh, but then when I was reading it, I really enjoyed what it did for the character. And that likable aspect was one more thing about it that really worked for me because Palpatine kept trying to get Vader and Tarkin to like each other. And I, I thought that was interesting because Palpatine really relied on Tarkin a heck of a lot more than I ever thought before. I mean, in a lot of ways, Tarkin is the military branch, uh, you know, and I used to always think Vader had more of a hand in that, but it's, it's more clear now than ever before that, that Tarkin played a much larger role in the empire as a whole. And I think that because of how fast he dies in a new hope, I always kind of forgot that. And, you know, everything with that, because I'd seen him already die in films, I was always kind of like not as invested in the character. So this being a new canon and being able to jump in and learn more about him, for once I found myself being more invested in him. And everything, like you said, Nathan, about how he used the, Tark the Tarkin doctrine and the way it was used was interesting to me. Uh, you know, one thing I am going to mention here in the spoiler free part is kind of spoiler. I'm going to read a real part here to give you an idea of of the nature of Tarkin, the way he was raised in the, the idea that fear can be used. Uh, there's a, a pirate captain that they finally got. And she goes, there isn't a prison that can contain me, boy, even on Eridu. Wilhuff offered a sly smile that would later become a kind of signature. You're confusing Eridu with worlds that have noble houses and trials by jury. Koana. She searched his youthful face. Execution on the spot, is it? Nothing so straightforward. She continued to appraise him openly and defiantly. There's hardly a part of me that hasn't been replaced, boy. But take my word. I'm not the last of my kind, and your convoys will continue to suffer. He allowed a nod. Only if we fail to discourage your followers. Outbound, had Quinlan and her crew transferred to one of the stolen containers whose sublight engines were programmed to send a ship slowly but inexorably towards the system's sun, the plight of the captives was broadcast on the pirate's own communications network. I mean, he basically, he sentenced them to their death and then broadcast it for everyone to watch. And this was something that he learned from his uncle. His uncle's stance on life, he uses the this carrion plateau and the carrion spike and all this references to it that at the end of the book, you finally figure out what 
the significance of the carrion spike because Tarkin uses it to name his ship. And when that all comes together, the whole background of the character it intrigued me beyond belief. I was so blown away by his background that for the first time ever, I was actually loving the character. But, you know, that that isn't the first time that that type of idea has been proposed, that we're going to broadcast executions as a as a deterrent. I mean, that's essentially what he did. It's a very harsh, it's a very, you know, dark way of keeping control, you know, keeping order. But he's doing it not to be evil. He's doing it not to be, you know, a bastard. He's doing it because he knows he needs to protect these shipments. He needs to stop the pirating. That was the whole point. I mean, and we find out throughout this book that he's done some pretty extreme things to what everybody else is doing. And there's a point where Teller, one of the uh, terrorists, is is referencing the sort of things that Tarkin is doing to try to maintain control and then turns around and does the almost the exact same thing. And again, maybe the wrong things for the right reason, but it was shocking but believable. Given that Tarkin is 50 years old in this story, could we then call it 50 years old Shades of Grey? Because that's kind of what we're getting here, Shades of Grey between the two. Um, I guess one last thing to add here from a non-spoiler perspective before we move into the spoiler section, because we are talking in big, broad strokes here. One thing I did find that this book did, continuity-wise, that was pretty positive is something that really, by its nature, A New Dawn couldn't do. And because it's not being written by someone previously versed in Legends continuity and heavy on the references, uh, and a previously established Star Wars author, something that Heir to the Jedi really couldn't do. Which is that throughout this book, amongst the many, many references here, you get references to things from the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars cartoon series. The carry-on spike vehicle that is Tarkin's personal ship. It's a location and a ship. It is based on basically the stealth ship from back in Cat and Mouse. Uh, one of the pre-film episodes of the Clone Wars from the Battle of Christophsis, right, when they're fighting Admiral Trench. Uh, there's a reference being made here uh, to the trial of Ahsoka and whatnot. There's there's several references going back to the Clone Wars cartoon series, not necessarily eschewing any you know other places that didn't show up in the show, but those references do come up. And they come up in the same way that Lucino always writes in these references as part of the backstory, as part of the tapestry of the story he's telling. And I think that for the first time, it felt like a book was legitimizing the Clone Wars within a continuity. Any other time seeing Clone Wars references and things, whether we're talking Fate of the Jedi with the backstory of Abeloth, or we're talking about uh, the Essential Guide to Warfare using references to it, I don't know about you guys, but to me, because of the way Clone Wars came in mm -hmm. after there was already an existing continuity produced between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, and it just sort of came in like a wrecking ball and shattered so much of it and rearranged so much of it, anytime we got a reference to the Clone Wars, uh, in fact, requiring me to label them separately on the Star Wars timeline gold because who knew what would change, what would be accepted, what would not be, and what's going to shatter something else. So they had to have a separate label. Every time a reference was made to the Clone Wars in something other than a specific Clone Wars episode or spin-off thing like the Karen Miller novels, it was always, damn it, another effing Clone Wars reference. They're never going to be able to sort this stuff out. And it, it was always more jarring and annoying 
than anything else. As cool as the backstory of Abeloth is in Fate of the Jedi, it still irks a lot of fans that by making the backstory intricately tied back into the Mortis trilogy and the Clone Wars, you now have to have the Clone Wars cartoon series in the Legends continuity. Right? They couldn't just say, oh, well, we're going to carry it over and it's just going to be part of this new story group canon along with Rebels and all this other stuff. Instead, it has to essentially exist in both. You can't use a scalpel and cut it out of the tissue of the Legends continuity because if you do that, now you're taking other necessary organs with it. Whereas here, being the basis of this new canon, A New Dawn really couldn't do it because it was based on Rebels and people would think, oh, well, you know, of course it has to reference the Clone Wars. It's based on the other cartoon. Heir to the Jedi doesn't have the kind of gravitas the name Lucino does with Hearn coming in and writing for Star Wars for the first time. Here's Lucino using these references, using them well, and building them into the tapestry of this entire thing that I think causes people who enjoyed the Clone Wars to perhaps sit back and say, finally, right, this story that I liked is now being thought of as legitimate and theoretically not being logically questioned anymore. It is part of this rather than seeming like, to some fans, a cancer eating away Mm. at the whole. It's just another organ. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure... Beyond the films. Tarkin was quoted as saying, The factor that contributed most to the demise of the Republic was not, in fact, the war, but rampant self-interest. Endemic to the political process our ancestors engineered, the insidious pursuit of self-enrichment grew only more pervasive through the long centuries, and in the end, left the body politic feckless and corrupt. Consider the self-interest of the core worlds, unwavering in their exploitation of the outer systems for resources. The outer systems themselves, undermined by their permissive disregard of smuggling and slavery. Those ambitious members of the Senate, who sought only status and opportunity. The reason our Emperor was able to negotiate the dark waters that characterized the terminal years of the Republic and remain at the helm through a catastrophic war that spanned the galaxy is that he has never been interested in status or self-glorification. On the contrary, he has been tireless in his devotion to unify the galaxy and ensure the well-being of its myriad populations. Now, with the institution of sector and over-sector governance, we are in the unique position to repay our debt to the Emperor for his decades of selfless service, by lifting some of the burden of quotidian rulership from his shoulders, by partitioning the galaxy into regions, we actually achieve a unity previously absent. Where once our loyalties and allegiances were divided, they now serve one being with one goal, a cohesive galaxy in which everyone prospers. For the first time in 1,000 generations, our sector governors will not be working solely to enrich Coruscant and the core worlds, but to advance the quality of life in the star systems that make up each sector, keeping the spaceways safe, maintaining open and accessible communications, assuring that tax revenues are properly levied and allocated to improving the infrastructure. The Senate will likewise be made up of beings devoted not to their own enrichment, but to the enrichment of the worlds they represent. 
This bold vision of the future requires not only the service of those of immaculate reputation and consummate skill in the just exercise of power, but also the service of a vast military dedicated to upholding the laws necessary to ensure galactic harmony. It may appear to some that the enactment of universal laws and the widespread deployment of a heavily armed military are steps toward galactic domination, but these actions are taken merely to protect us from those who would invade, enslave, exploit, or foment political dissent, and to punish accordingly any who engage in such acts. Look on our new military not as trespassers or interlopers, but as gatekeepers, here to shore up the Emperor's vision of a pacified and prosperous galaxy. The media took to calling it the Tarkin Doctrine, and some commentators began to wonder if he wasn't destined to become the new voice of the Empire. Star Wars Tarkin, pages 249 through 251. Whoa, and let's start the spoiler part with two of the whoa moments that really aren't the core of the book, but two things that probably have more lasting implications, perhaps, than some of the other aspects of the story itself. Two in a row, and then we'll move on to more specific to the story type spoiler discussion here. So, number one, and we can go around, Palpatine's got a name. All of a sudden, it's not just Palpatine of the one name that we constantly see him as. Even the Darth Plagueis novel didn't really give him a first name, even though it gave first names to other members of his family, just saying, well, he just used his last name because he wanted to be known as that and carry on the legacy of blah, blah, blah. Uh, I always thought it should be cause Palpatine because of his earlier incarnation in early drafts as, I love the name, cause dash it, D-A-S-H-I-T, cause the shit because he's the one that causes shit to go down within the story. But now he has a first name. And I don't think it's one that a lot of fans have really gotten, I don't want to say came to grips with, or have gotten I'll their heads it. around. It's it's just kind of lame. He's Sheev Palpatine. Jonathan, your thoughts Nathan, on Sheev? I think it's a stupid name. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, when they when, when I read that, I'm like, really? That's what we're going with? That That's it's just silly. And it's such a toss away in the book they mention it once and it's kind of like oh whatever but i mean they use it to make the point that the relationship between tarkin and palpatine is such that they are on a first name basis but they could have gotten the same effect without ever using the name and it was it was really an anti-climax it was sheevy <laughs> i mean I don't know. It was it was a weird sound, weird roll off the tongue, and it I don't know. It doesn't seem evil enough. I I, I don't know. You know, I I want something like Adolf. I think I don't know what's wrong with it, but there's something about it that yeah leaves a foul taste in my mouth, worse than Tarkin. The second thing that I think is interesting, cool spoiler, blink and you'll miss it, but something that has an impact on how we view a lot of the rest of the saga is this thing that he drops basically in passing that the Jedi Temple on Coruscant was built atop an ancient Sith shrine on Coruscant. And the idea was that the Jedi wanted to uh, diminish and cap the dark side power that was located at this shrine. And by setting up the Jedi Temple there, they believe that they've succeeded. But instead, over the years, that fact is mostly forgotten. The Sith are in hiding, so they're not going to it. But 
the dark side power isn't actually stifled. Instead, it slowly insinuates itself within the Jedi Temple and starts clouding the abilities and visions of the Jedi Order at the same time that the Sith are plotting their revenge and slowly making their return. This idea that, you know, the dark side clouds everything and all the different references we get to the Jedi's abilities being diminished and their their leadership being flawed in the Clone Wars isn't necessarily just, well, the Sith are gaining power. It's the fact that they sat their freaking temple on a place that is essentially poisoned ground for them. I found that fascinating and awesome. But it only shows up in, what, a paragraph or two? And then disappears again despite having a massive impact here, I think. Yeah, it's brought up a second time because Palpatine had them excavate down to it, and he was using it as his own little personal layer kind of thing. He had a one one D four whatever uh, Plagueis's droid was, so that droid made it come over because I, I love that droid. But that was something that made me stop and scratch my head because, you know, in Legends we had references to the fact that the Jedi had done something similar to that in the New Jedi Order, and I was like, oh, you know, like is. Is that kind of where they were going with that in the new, cause the new Jedi order never gave us an answer to what that was. So I was like, Oh, that's, that's beautiful. But it also made me start thinking about the aspect of the way the force works too. You know, I mean, tainted places, uh, the force at work, you know, is the dark side. Does it have a presence? The fact that it's able to seep out and kind of, you know, corrupt them. I was like, Oh, these are all interesting plays. That's something that now that they've done that reset with canon and, and legends no longer is applied. That was something Legends always played with, though, with the idea that there was something to it or that there wasn't something to it or it could be both, you know, that there was no dark side, but there was a dark side, that once these dark places were created, they couldn't necessarily be destroyed and they would corrupt other things that went there, that the force by itself wasn't evil, but we could create the evil. And then once that evil was created, it it had a life of its own. And so, you know, seeing that those aspects were still there in canon. I mean, yeah, you mentioned it was very short and quick, but oh man, I almost peed my pants. That was the kind of stuff that I really get excited about. And I'm like, please God, let them be doing something with that somewhere, somehow. Well, that brings something up for me about this whole novel. Doesn't it feel like unfinished? Like they need to go. There's so many things started here that they need to take further. The whole new canon right now is that way. I'm getting that every book I've read so far. And I, and I think that, that this might be part of the plan because these books aren't part of the journey to the force awakens. And these books were all put out during that time where even the writers didn't quite know they were writing new canon stuff. So I think these are like a phase one kind of thing. And the journey to is, is the true phase one, but it is actually phase two of the new Canon. And that the phase two is where it's going to really start feeling more plotted out. Like right now, these books feel like they're really world building, really, you know, that they're each set in a different location in the air and they're kind of giving you a glimpse forward and backward. One of the things I noticed about this one was really weird was the implication of the narration because they talk about in one of the things, a, a quote that Palpatine was famous for, and they mentioned it being five years after uh, his death or something like that, like years after his death, something he was quoted for. And I was like, how interesting, you know, because most of this book seems like, like Nathan said, it's five years after Return of the Sith, but it's actually written much, much later than that, placed in that time period. And I thought that was interesting too. Well, again, with the questions that came up for me with this book was, we learned that there's a 20-year difference between Tarkin and Palpatine. And for some reason, I thought that they were a little bit closer in age. I don't know exactly why I thought that, but 
How old is Palpatine? Palpatine is born... Okay, Palpatine was born in the Legends continuity, and presumably this carries over as far as his age, because it makes sense with the reference here to him being approximately two decades older. He was, in the Legends continuity, born 82 BBY, so he was basically 50 years old in Phantom Menace, whereas Tarkin, born 64 BBY, is 50 years old in this story. So there is a sizable age gap between the two, but I think part of it is this idea that, you know, when we think of these older characters, a lot of times once the characters get past a certain point, the age kind of starts to blend together. I mean, it's kind of like with relationships, right? You know, a nine-year gap between me and my wife is okay now, and it'll be even more okay in the future, but scroll it back a few years before we got together, and that would have been rather creepy, where age is a matter of context. So these two guys being sort of the older guys, yeah, you know, I don't think that ever would have been something to really make a difference to us. But yeah, as you get younger and younger in these two guys' lives, that age difference becomes much more readily apparent. I mean... Palpatine, Sheev, was already, you know, in politics and really kind of building a name for himself, while Tarkin was still relatively young. It makes Tarkin almost like a protege in some respects, or or it does make him a protege of Palpatine, Mm -hmm. instead of making Tarkin someone who was sort of alongside Palpatine. I think we see that here, I think, where it starts to be a little bit more difficult to spot is more like when we're looking at the Clone Wars. I don't think the character model of Tarkin, because I think we were seeing it as an adaptation of the Tarkin we got in A New Hope, I don't think we necessarily looked at it as being meant to be a significantly younger one beyond just younger than the one in A New Hope to realize how big a difference there would be in the way that they're designed between Tarkin and Palpatine. But even then, if you look at Say, Palpatine, the way we see him at the trial of Ahsoka and his character model versus Tarkin's character model, there is a big age gap in the design. It's just not something I don't, I think we generally pay attention to. You know, that's another thing about canon being reset. That whole aspect of, you know, 30 or 70s, the new 30, you know, with the big three and their ages being changed. I wonder if they're going to do anything in that regard anymore, or if that's something that's going to go. I, I I was just joking, though, uh, in the chat here with Jonathan about the Emperor. Wouldn't it be funny if we find out that he's a Sith Emperor from Tor, and now Tor is also canon? Like, they're like, the first retcon! You're like, wait, what? Oh, God, no. God, it, it's bad enough that they built, that the Legends continuity built at that hole. Well, he's wrinkled because it's a clone body that was deteriorating, and then Lucas came through later with the prequel and said, uh, no, no, BS. That's his original body. You can make him a clone after that, but that's his original body. Thanks, screw you. So I guess let's... I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about Tarkin himself here, which, of course, is the topic of the book, but I want to flip this around a little bit and get into... Before we talk a little bit more about Tarkin and, and certain things that did bother me in the sense about his characterization here, we need the context of who he's up against. And basically the idea here, we've talked about it earlier about how this are basically Republic loyalists. You have... A guy who used to work for for Republic Intelligence, Birch Teller. And Teller, at one point, after technically the Clone Wars were over, had had assets on Antar IV. And one of the first places that Tarkin pacifies for the Emperor by basically blowing the crap out of the place is Antar IV, the Antar atrocity, as they call it. And... There's this request put in by Teller, who by then is elsewhere. He's actually assigned to, I believe it's Desolation Station, 
as the head of security, where he's learning about the Death Star by being there as part of that whole project, he makes a request to try to get in there and get his assets off the world before this pacification can happen, and he isn't really officially able to do so. And he winds up basically building... He, he disappears. He leaves Desolation Station. He essentially goes AWOL, as do some others, including a Moncal scientist named Artaz. And he hooks up with other people speaking out against the Empire. He hooks up with basically a reporter and someone who creates realistic Holonet-type uh, visuals to go along with the reports. Uh, Anora Fair and Hask Taff get some other resistance fighters like uh, the Gotal Salik and the Kuravar named Kala, and basically builds this group together out of disaffected people that he had minor links with, uh, including using an individual named Knots, who uh, helped set up their missions and set up some arrangements for them, who had also been a contact for Republic Intelligence. And we find that this is all being sort of manipulated and masterminded by Vice Admiral Rancid who is with naval intelligence, with Screed, but essentially you've got Rancid there, who wants to make a name for himself at the Imperial Court, very much like Vidian back in the New Dawn, and more court politics. And he is manipulating this group to basically you know, have them attack the Empire a few times, then put them in harm's way, defeat them, and make that something that makes a name for himself. Uh, it all feels... I guess it feels like it makes sense, the way these, all, these groups all connect together and such... They all have their grievances against the Empire, at least everybody but Rancid. They all come together. It's very much like you would see in almost any Star Wars RPG group of Rebels. The thing about them, though, is that they never really get a whole lot of depth beyond that. They just kind of are this ragtag group thrown together. And I never really felt like they were much of a real threat to the Empire or to Tarkin. Their fight always seemed kind of futile. And beyond just, well, we don't like the Empire because of what happened back on Antar 4 and the atrocities that we've seen... The personal motives don't really feel like they're there in a heavy sense, even though they're supposed to be. They felt like very flimsy antagonists, if you want to call them that, for this book. What did you guys think of Teller and his band and Rancid with his motivations kind of over the top of them? See, for me, this was directly lifted from Cloak of Deception. We had uh, Captain Coyne, who was a terrorist and I believe a previous soldier who was being manipulated by uh, a greater being, I think in this case Sidious, to kind of work against the protagonists in that book, the Jedi. And I found myself while I was reading this book and and reading these characters, I'm like, these are direct lifts. And as you said, Nathan, they're they're very stereotypical characters and stereotypical uh personas but it it just it rang for me just such a copy yeah see i didn't catch that one i i definitely got more out of the reread of this book uh it's one of those where i i really dislike having to learn secrets to fully understand it i like things where it's more spelt out with the bigger mysteries at play so yeah by the time i got to the reread and stuff i was like oh okay okay that's going on that's going on uh you know rancid and stuff all that I did not catch any of it. And then it, I get to the end. And then I go back and I, I re-listen to it again. And what Palpatine was doing during some of these meetings with his his soldiers and his, his generals, his admirals and all that stuff made a lot more sense. It was a classic Emperor Palpatine that I knew and loved, but I didn't realize he was laying out traps at that point. Uh, you know, and when Tarkin 
wiped out everyone on Antar 4, I thought that was crazy because it was it didn't matter if you were loyalist or not. He just wiped them all out and then swept it all under the carpet. But again, those things we didn't find out until almost the very end of the book. I mean, I I was like you, Nathan, kind of confused as to what the real motives were for the group at that point. I mean, they were doing some impressive things. <laughs> they were making Tarkin and Vader look really bad at times, and I was getting to like them more. But by the time we got to the end, it was pretty much they were all one-and-done characters, and I felt like the background that we got, we got too little too late to really invest into those characters. Mark, let me ask you a question, though. We're talking about those characters. What did you feel about how Tarkin figured out who they were? That was slick. And and, and I think Nathan may have mentioned it pre-show about how they kind of made uh, Tarkin more Thrawn-like. Uh, I, and I appreciated that a lot more there were ways that he was able to deduce their fuel usages and stuff and even teller was able to reverse that on him because of his time with tarkin but yeah tarkin was able to constantly uh outthink him there were there were some really great moments inside tarkin's head when he was inside a v-wing when him and vader were flying and stuff uh and there were moments where the collateral damage was brought up and, and tarkin's like well i'll put it all on my head uh a lot of tarkin's the character Nathan was saying earlier about how they, they do little things to fix some of the mess ups that legends did. And, and he'd already been elevated to the point of grand Moff, I believe, or, or, or near it. He was already a Moff, but they were calling him governor. And they mentioned the fact that that was also wrote in, like, even though he was the Moff that he still had the, the, the governor surd title. Uh, and I don't know. I, one aspect I felt like the book itself also was a, a journey for Tarkin to become Grand Moff. You know, his place in the Empire was more solidified by the end of the book. See, Mark, you call it slick, the way he pieced it all together. I find it very difficult to believe. It really felt like Thrawn, not in the Thrawn trilogy or Hand of Thrawn duology, it felt like Thrawn in Choices of One, where he's this master schemer and is able to see the entire chessboard of the universe at once and, and pinpoint everything that's going to happen down to nothing. He is, I'm reading Dune right now, the Kwisatz Haderach, right? He sees all possibilities and is able to find the way through them correctly. It was very much like the way he figured this out is he's sitting there with all the information. It's basically one giant section near the end of the book where he's doing some investigation and all this information falls into place in the span of a handful of pages while he's doing the investigation. It's not a little bit at a time. It's very much like if they say, okay, well, you see that we know that there's someone involved named Nathan Butler and this other person named Darius or Darius. Well, let's see. Now, the place was Evansville, Indiana, around the Evansville, Indiana area. So it must be this Nathan Butler, Nathan P. Butler. And, well, he went to school with this guy when he was younger, the only African-American in his school that was a close friend of his when he was very young, whose name was Darius, and therefore this must be the Darius involved. Now, ignoring the fact that there were plenty of people named Darius that I've taught and met in college, for instance, and the fact that I know of at least two or three different Nathan Butlers of the same era in which I had the name Nathan Butler, including one that's a Nathan E. Butler that went to my same college and was friends with my stepsisters just a couple of towns over. He's looking at facts, and it's like he's jumping to the right conclusions constantly based on minuscule information when there are so many other ways that same information could have played out. He's just magically happening upon all the exact right answers. The only thing he gets wrong is the idea of whether or not this group uh, was brought together by Rancid 
by whoever was the imperial power above them. That's the one thing he doesn't immediately figure out. Or if they were already together as a group and then Rancid wound up kind of approaching them once the group was already formed. But constantly it's, here's a little nibble of information. Here's a planet. Here's a list of the people on it. Ah, this must be the guy. This must be the guy. Oh, this is the same first name. This person must be it. Oh, this is the same species as this other character. This must be the one who's on the ship with him. It's kind of a ridiculous... You know, Sherlock Holmes would have looked at Tarkin and went, Damn, son! Because of how he put all this stuff together. It's like they needed a chance to pull the information together so that Tarkin knew his enemy. And without laying out more detailed hints as to who they are, the few little teeny tiny hints had to be what very quickly gave him the answer. It's the one part of the book that felt significantly rushed to me. Because I don't think... The revelations and Tarkin's ability to piece this all together was earned in the book. It really felt like a Thrawn manipulating events from behind the scene. All of a sudden, Tarkin has some kind of godly force intuition or something to be able to make this many leaps of logic this correctly, this quickly. And it it's the one significant problem I have with the book. I really enjoyed it, despite the fact that it wasn't, you know, big, epic, or essential. But that one instance where he becomes super thrawn Sherlock Holmes had <laughs> me sitting back scratching my head. I just assumed it was one of those things where it was his his uncle and his father. You know, the, the, the Tarkin family was just so brutal, and the, the way they looked at life, the way that they, they broke everything down, uh, I just... I don't know. Maybe maybe that was just me wanting him to be more like Thrawn. Uh, or maybe it's just because I'm just not that smart a guy. I don't know. <laughs> well, Nathan, let me ask you a question. How would you have felt if it had turned out to be Palpatine slash Sidious pulling the strings to create this situation to bring things more directly under his control, to, to have Vader and Tarkin bond? Because you get the sense early in the book that Palpatine knows a lot more about what's going on than he lets on. I think it would have been interesting. We would have been complaining that it had already been done with the Force Unleashed. But it would have been an interesting play on it. And and it's funny because this seems like a theme that's going back. I can't remember if it was you or Brock that said it. Uh, it may have even been Jerry. I think it was you or Brock. Back when we were talking about uh, some of the last episodes of the Rebels series, the Rebels first season, somebody made the comment of, wouldn't it be cool if Fulcrum had turned out to be Palpatine? It's a cool twist, but it would sort of, I think, take away from Tarkin, in a sense, if he was being manipulated in that way. It, it wouldn't make him seem as much of the uh, the awesome leader as we get here, I think. I think it's an interesting concept. I think it's more of a matter of they're trying to show Palpatine not so much as the master schemer, which he is. We see that in other circumstances. More so that Palpatine is much more, if I can use an American political reference, like what was said by Rahm Emanuel, who, of course, was with the Obama administration and became mayor of Chicago. One of his lines that has come back to haunt him over and over again is, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right? Look at a situation in which there is a crisis, but use that opportunity to get more authority, more power, more of your agenda pushed through as you address the crisis. So here's a situation where Palpatine is aware of a problem. He's going to use that opportunity to address the crisis while trying to bring Vader and Tarkin together as a unit that can work well together. I think it would have worked either way, but I think I prefer this way so that Tarkin doesn't seem quite as manipulated and we get that sort of Palpatine taking advantage of situations 
angle to things, more so than him being sort of the super master schemer where everything's going to have to be going as he has foreseen. You know, speaking of Palpatine being all going as you've foreseen, there's a, a conversation between Vader and Palpatine that that I, I think illustrates the whole triumvirate that we have here in the Empire. I understand, Master. Sidious's tortured face was a mask. I wonder if you do. But let us return to Moff Tarkin for a moment. Has it never struck you that all three of us, you and Tarkin and I, the Empire's architects, if you will, Hail from worlds that occupy a narrow slice of galactic space. Naboo, Tatooine, Iriadu. All within an arc of less than 30 degrees. Vader said nothing. I I thought that the fact that Palpatine was really pushing, you know, like, it was almost like he wanted, like, the ultimate bromance here. It's like, if I could just get Tarkin and Vader to get together, we could have an awesome little Empire party every weekend. You know what I mean? And there's that internal thing where, where we didn't get it from Vader, but Tarkin has a very strong suspicion that he knows that Anakin Skywalker is inside Vader. And so you've got that aspect where, you know, we, the viewers, we know that Vader probably doesn't like Tarkin because it's pretty obvious that Anakin remembers him, but they don't mention it from Vader's point of view. It's all from Tarkin's. And the fact that Tarkin knew who he was inside there, even though it was never confirmed 100%, but I believe it was twice where he, he was looking at Vader and, and he thought, Sure enough, it's got to be Anakin Skywalker in there. And I was just, I was kind of fist pumping for that moment. Well, that brings something up for me that I've always wondered who knows and who doesn't know, you know, that Vader is Anakin. One thing that I really liked about how they personified Vader in this is you get the sense he has really turned his back on that whole part of his life. Like he doesn't even acknowledge that that was ever who he was. Now, we definitely see an evolution of Vader here, and I'm hoping that this continuity will be more consistent as far as the way they present him, in terms of when is it that he is still trying to gain the Emperor's favor? When is it that he is particularly against the Emperor? When is it that he's the Emperor's whipping boy and being blamed for all these things that maybe he couldn't completely control? Uh, when is he on the outs with the Emperor, etc., etc.? Um, here, we've got that new set of growth. It'd be interesting to see a story with Vader between Revenge of the Sith and this, or between this and Rebels, which I guess we're getting with Lords of the Sith, to see how he abandons the Anakin side of himself to become Vader. Because we got elements of that in certain stories in the Legends continuity, but now that's all essentially out the window. It'd be interesting to see that they really care about the psychological development still of Vader, but perhaps that they could do it a little more consistently this time around. You know, another thing that Vader was able to provide us with was a look into the clone troopers. We see uh, Sergeant Crest, you know, one of the very advanced age clones, and Vader's threatening, you know, do I need to retire you? Uh, I thought that was a kind of interesting, cool thread that was going out throughout it. What about you guys? Did you guys dig on that? I wondered what retirement meant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, guess what? Can't use you anymore to the recycling bin with you. I, I liked Crest, and I liked that. It was kind of this evolution of the Imperial forces. And we get that throughout. I mean, they talk about how the judicials became really the leadership of the Grand Army of the Republic and how that further evolved post-Revenge of the Sith. I liked that. They also talk about how so much of the material from the Clone Wars and from the Republic is now repurposed as – imperial things and how they're making this this slow transition the fact you said 
they have V-wings and they're still using them and they introduce these new TIE fighters that Tarkin describes as, you know, expendable and disposable. And even some of the new ships and material that we're going to see later being introduced, such as interdictor cruisers and Nebula and B frigates. I, that part of it, that continued universe building is something that I've always appreciated in Star Wars novels. I mean, give me something that makes this environment feel like something more than just what we need to know to get through this story. And this, this book did that. Oh yeah. Lucino is amazing when it comes to that sort of thing. And it's funny because usually we don't think of it as world building because he's writing stories after others have written a bunch of stories and he's just using references to each to link it together. And it feels like it's more of a connected universe than necessarily universe building. But with this being the first of this type of book in this new canon where it's, it's really heavily full of details then yeah, it felt like it was really building a foundation. That's what I loved about when I was working on it for the Timeline Gold. You know, there'd be references to things like Compor becoming Compnor. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, we'd heard of that before, but this is the first time we're seeing how it happens and hearing about it in this continuity, being able to make that reference there. You know, the even something as simple as, you know, the age of Tarkin. Hey, now we know exactly how old he is in this continuity and so forth. It's, it's really a cool experience, though I'm wondering how much of it was meant as world building. And how much was just Lucino being Lucino, and the result was world-building. As for Sergeant Crest, I just, I don't know, for some reason, the name just made me laugh every time I saw it. I wondered which member of the, the clone trooper unit with the last name Crest he was. I mean, is this the guy who's going after the corruption, so is he like Tartar Control Crest? Is he out there? He's the one that makes everything all nice and clean. So is he the whitening crest? Maybe he's got some medical training. He's crest pro-health. Which crest was he? Sensitive. <laughs> yeah, he's like the poet. He's a, he's a trooper poet, so he's crest sensitivity training. Uh, you know, th- another thing, though, there was a comment Tarkin had made throughout the book uh, when he was talking about the Death Star, and he was talking about it being impenetrable. And it's a common thing that I, I often think about when it comes to Tarkin's character and the Death Star itself. You know, I mean, he's we're shown that he's so thorough with so many things that I really think now, especially with new canon and stuff, they really need to do maybe a sequel book with the Death Star. But they need to have a rebel team that infiltrates the Death Star and goes out of their way to create or hide the fact that there is that exhaust port because that's always been the one weird thing about the whole film, you know, a new hope that's always just struck me as odd. It's like, you're going to build this giant thing, but have this one glaring freaking weakness. How did this get past you? Like, but if you had a rebel group that went out of their way to make sure that that, Oh, that was repaired. And every time somebody goes over there, they make sure no one notices it or something. I don't care how they do it, but have some kind of rebel plot that causes that to be unknown that that was there because to this day, that's one of those things that drives me nuts. And the fact that Tarkin's going on about it being impenetrable, I'm like, come on. Well, it was a government contract, and they were probably hiring the lowest bidder, so, yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, if they had known, they would have had some Wookiees out there nailing some plywood over it, right? (laughs) With no suits or anything. Just go out there until you die. I do like, speaking of the Death Star aspect here, I'm wondering at what point the Death Star name comes into play. Because I found it interesting that, for the most part in this book, particularly when it's in conversation, the... Death Star, as we think of it, isn't referred to as the Death Star. 
which of course in the Legends continuity, the name was so ubiquitous, it was freaking everywhere, that you wouldn't see it referred to by usually anything other than the Death Star. Here, it's the Deep Space Mobile Battle Station almost every time it's being referred to. I like the fact that, I mean, really, if this is supposed to be Palpatine being able to somehow make the claim that this, when it's finally revealed, is going to be meant for, you know, pacification and mining, it's a it's a law enforcement tool not meant as a military weapon of mass destruction. And here's Tarkin being able to rationalize to himself that it's about force or fear of force to create peace. Deep Space Mobile Battle Station sounds a lot better than Death Star. Because Death Star kind of seems to undercut their motives, you know? Uh, uh, it, it's like if you're going to, if you just started up a new town and you're going to create a new police force, even if your intention is for them to start harassing the citizens every so often, you're still going to call them the such and such police department, not the Legion of Doom. You know what I'm saying? Well, so now the Death Star is a rebel designation, maybe? Well, it's funny because you remember. In if you've listened to the radio drama of A New Hope, it's known as the Death Star. It's got the code name Death Star or whatever, and this is something that Leia learns. And in one of the segments that takes place actually prior to the film itself in the radio drama, there's this dinner that she has with a man who's an Imperial officer somewhat over uh, the sector and whatnot. And in conversation, she uses the phrase, blah, 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 this Death Star, referring to the project used in such a way that you could imagine it being a term that someone would come up with to describe it. Now, in that case, it's because she's heard it, and he's like, how did you know that name? And things kind of go awry from there. But, you know, it's something that you've got the context out there of, you know, this maybe is something that the rebels would call it as opposed to something else. It's like it's like the Affordable Care Act versus Obamacare, right? You know, if you're already against Obama, Obamacare it's a bad name to go after, but the Affordable Care Act, despite the fact that for most people it's not freaking affordable at all, unless you get the subsidies, and we'll see what the Supreme Court says about that for states, or for the federal exchange, you've got the Affordable Care Act. It sounds good, but it's very much like we see dictatorial governments do in the real world, right? I mean, think about, you know, what what is communist China? The People's Republic of China, except the people have no voice, especially when it was first founded, and it's kind of the opposite of a republic. It's not about voting for your leaders and having your representation there. It's a communist freaking dictatorship. But it sounds good to call it the People's Republic of China. That's why you've got People's Republic in so many different communist nations over time. I don't know. I like the idea that this could be a rebel designation, though I don't know that it necessarily is. I just find it fascinating that they would make it a point, it seems like, in this book to say... You know, that, that it wasn't just called Death Star to begin with. I mean, probably Palpatine's about going, yes, it's my Death Star. I'm a Sith. I'm so evil. But you've got contractors working on it, scientists working on it, some who eventually leave like Artaz, but others who are just working on the thing. And at some point, you got to wonder, how do you get people to work on something called a Death Star unless they're freaking crazy or scared to death of Palpatine? Well, maybe you present it a different way and give it a different <laughs> name. You know, the Death Star is kind of that driving force going on throughout the, I guess the underlying part of this book that you know that's that's ultimately it. They're they're trying to protect it, and you have these terrorists who know about the I guess convoy of material that's being sent, and that's their ultimate goal is to disrupt that convoy and delay it. But the one thing that, and I, I can't believe we haven't really talked about this earlier, 
there's a discussion between, or maybe it's not even discussion, maybe it's something that Palpatine is thinking, that when the Death Star is built and Tarkin is in control of it, I get the real impression from some of the things that Palpatine says is that he's going to step back then. He doesn't want to deal with the day-to-day imperial experiences. He's not interested in being the, the dark overlord. He wants to go take Vader and explore the dark side, that he's not interested in being the administrator to the Empire anymore. Yes, and he says that, and and I found it interesting, the excuse he gives is that in exploring the, the nature of the dark side, what he's, it's not that he's trying to become a more powerful Sith in general. His goal is to literally gain a mastery of the Force so that he could create or recreate the universe through the Force in ways that he wants and such. I mean, he's really going for this sort of ultimate power in the universe, but you get the sense that he's been waiting for someone, and it certainly isn't Vader, at least not by himself, that could do this. It doesn't even seem necessarily that he wants Vader to have the depth of knowledge that he's going for in the dark side, so much as he needs someone who just isn't as brash as Vader to be able to handle much of the power structure of the Empire. He even reorganizes elements. I mean, by the end of the book... We have naval intelligence get folded back into regular military intelligence. We have Wolf Ularn become the deputy director of military intelligence under Screed, right, from droids. We have uh, Harris Ison being moved to the Ubicturate. Nils Tenet, who briefly shows up early in the book as an old Clone Wars comrade of Tarkin, becoming one of the Joint Chiefs. Mahdi and Tag getting promotions. Tarkin becoming the Grand Moff, and so on. The whole the idea of having like, over-sectors and whatnot, that organization. All of this is happening because of these events and because of Tarkin, in some respects, because of Tarkin's suggestions about the whole over-sectors idea. So you get the sense that, in a sense, this really is sort of a game-changing novel in that it's creating that structure of the galaxy. Though I don't think that's something that we ever needed the backstory for. I think it's sort of one of these things we kind of took for granted, I guess, in a lot of ways because of the Legends continuity. But, yeah, it seems like even if he's not officially in charge of the entire Empire, he certainly is being handed off a lot of the authority to make his own calls and given a rank that would allow him to pull rank on other people if it was necessary. Interesting. It would make sense for why we don't see the Emperor in A New Hope, right? The imp- and the idea that the Emperor is somewhat reclusive in the galaxy by the time we get to A New Hope, that he is dwelling more on the dark side than being the, you know, the matter. He's not asking you for your TPS reports. That'll be great. We did see that he needed to have that promotion because at one point, one of the other Imperials refuses a command. Well, you're not my governor. And, you know, making Tarkin the Grand Moff also works in that regard because it gives him that authority that's needed. And it also feeds into why Tarkin was able to make the call to destroy Alderaan. He didn't have to get the Emperor's permission. He didn't have to, you know, get Vader's permission. That he had the authority to wipe out a major system. Governor, if you had let me know before you blew up Alderaan, I would have sold all my stock, you bastard. You know, Jonathan, you were mentioning earlier how the Death Star kind of moved the plot along. The one thing that really drove the plot the most uh, was the fact that his ship, the Carrion Spike, ends up getting hijacked. And, you know, the rebels at this point, I I look at them as rebels because they're technically rebelling, even though they're not part of any bigger organization that we know of. But they're going to turn it into, you know, a weapon to to hurt 
the empire, you know, basically make it a propaganda weapon in the sorts. You know, it, it's supposed to be Tarkin's shining example of all this, that, and the other stuff. But there was also this this underlying theme there because Palpatine says something to Vader about, you know, ask Tarkin why the ship's named the Carrion Spike, and you know, the the ship itself was bristling with just technology, all these uh, computer systems that confounded sensors, and just everything about it was top of the line. And so I was very curious as to, you know, when we got to the end, what was the real reason? And when they get there, I found it was actually really interesting for the character on multiple levels because he's not only able to do a past, but also a present with the Carrion Spike location. Uh, and I, I thought that was kind of brilliant. Well, personally, I think the idea of that type of trial for, I guess, an entitled young man is really interesting. I mean, they bring him into a situation and, you know, over the course of several years, they keep bringing him back to this very, I guess, brutal environment. This this one area of Ariadu that hasn't been overdeveloped and where there's predators all the time and it's literally deadly and and in some points they throw him into life-threatening situations to see if he'll survive it honestly is a trial by fire and in some ways a lot more sith-like than jedi-like when you think about Mm -hmm. trials i mean with the culmination of you know of this trial where he has to go and spend time on this plateau you know on, on this literally this 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 spike where these veermarks these creatures who have killed his ancestors who didn't make the trial so after experiencing this surviving this really you know being in constant harm's way can we really expect that he wouldn't have turned out as he did the whole carry-on spike thing, the broad picture of, of the carry-on spike, I thought it was interesting how he's going through these trials, how he has his own version of essentially Jedi trial type thing. The idea that it's honing him and we get to know the predatory instincts, how he's able to use certain lessons about predator and prey and whatnot in the wild when he's out there as, you know, whether he's fighting against the pirates, when he's with the judicial force, or not the judicial force, the outland uh, security force, or whether he's dealing with things as... Imperial, with the Republic, etc., etc., how basically it's his formative adventure and how it's told through flashbacks. One thing I do like in stories is the use of flashbacks when they're done well as like a parallel story. And I I like it in something like, say, Lost. And we get it with the TV show Arrow, for instance. And Star Wars doesn't tend to use flashbacks a lot. You see it every so often in novels. And this tends to use it very well because it's not random flashbacks in most respects. It's done as this continuing storyline. It's almost like there are three different storylines going here. You've got the present situation. You've got a storyline in a sense about the development of Tarkin's career. But there's still things we're learning about the carry-on spike and his trials there as it goes along. So it's almost like you've got the carry-on spike trial story. The other part of his career story, his backstory in that sense, and then the present story all being told simultaneously here, uh, alternating as they go. And it manages to give us more depth to the character and give us some context for his actions. Now, taken by itself, was a story of the carry-on spike and what not particularly interesting? I actually didn't find it all that interesting. Its effect on Tarkin I found fascinating, but... 
I was always kind of wanting to zip through as I was reading those sections because what was happening on the carry-on plateau didn't interest me as much as what was happening in the present or even in the segments where it was basically just talking about his career and things like his first meeting with Sheev Palpatine and whatnot. The carry-on spike was incredibly important, and yet I felt some of the, the weaker, less interesting parts of the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good assessment. I didn't think about it in that regard. It's not necessarily what happened at it, but what happened for the character based on it. And yeah, that was where the more profound character building came from. It was almost like you, you needed to get it out of the way to really understand. I don't know about you guys, but but those Veermocks, the way they were mentioned, you know, I some of them reminded me of gorillas, you know, like, I don't know, they're just big brooding, the way they kind of herded together, the way that everything about how they were presented. Uh, they were definitely an interesting twist on, you know, what was going on on the carrion spike because I was I kept thinking, like, you know, what was so big and bad about it, you know? But by the time Tarkin's done with this trial and what happens for the Veermocks and stuff, I thought it was kind of kind of cool because he, he does this whole like gorillas in the mist where he's watching these native species of an intelligent like animal. Again, that's why I kept thinking gorillas and he's watching the, the, the structure of their community, you know, who the alpha is, who the next alpha is, you know, the young generation, the old generation, how their the family dynamic is working amongst the group, you know, and all that stuff. And then when it comes time to take advantage of it, he hits the main targets. And I don't know, again, it gets back to that aspect of, of life on Iriadu was just one of those places that formed him into the perfect evil. And I think you said it perfect, Nathan, at the beginning, you know, the, the evil characters that don't know they're evil are the best. And this book really made me appreciate Tarkin in that role. Uh, you know, yeah, Legends may have done that, but I never really appreciated him in Legends where I, I really... I want to see him more in Rebels now because of this book. We mentioned how it's sort of the nature of Iriadu that shapes him. Uh, this harsh environment of the carry-on plateau with the Veermocks. And seriously, now you got me picturing the movie Congo, and I'm going to laugh every time I see the Veermocks again. But I actually think also the political structure of the galaxy in relation to Iriadu also had a role in shaping him. Because something that sticks out to me is something that's always kind of surprised my world history students, in real history, which is that if you look, for instance, at the Latin American revolutions, you know, you got the American Revolution that sort of sparks the French Revolution. As that's going on, you have the revolution. It's essentially a slave revolution going on in Haiti. But then when things really start to boil over in Latin America, you would think that, well, it's like it always is, right? It's the peasants rising up against their oppressors. It's like what was happening in France. And it's really not in some respects. Because the leaders of the, of the Latin American revolutions tended to be the so-called Creoles. You had the whites who came from Europe, from the, the Iberian Peninsula in Europe, who were then ruling, who thought of themselves as the Peninsulares, named after the Iberian. Then you had the Creoles, who were also white with European background, but who were born in the New World. And then you go on down into the different mixed races, down into then the Native Americans and the slaves. And it tended to be the Creoles, like these second-class citizens. They were white, and they were privileged over everybody else just about that they were governing over. But there was this even higher upper class of whites who had come directly from Europe, having been born there, that were their overlords. And it was them rising up against the overlords, in a sense. They were the ones with the money and the power and the influence to make a rebellion actually work. But it was essentially privileged rising up against even more privileged because they were looked down on by the people from Europe. And that's kind of what we've got here. Iriadu 
was relatively sophisticated beyond these hinterlands like the Carrion Plateau, and the Tarkins were extremely influential and powerful on Iriadu. But to the rest of the galaxy, Iriadu was like the backwater. It was like the, 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 the core systems, the core worlds like Coruscant, well, that's Spain. Whereas what we've got going on over here on Iriadu, well, that's like being the New World. That's like the Latin American colonies of the Spanish. And your heritage may be similar, your culture may be similar, but you're just not from where we're from, so you're lesser. And that's driving him constantly in terms of his pursuit of power and recognition, even if it's subtle at times, where he's essentially trying to almost sort of make himself into a core worlder despite the fact that he's not because of the derision placed on people from Iriadu. I thought that was fascinating to see, given the parallels to real history that we see in our part of the world. Again, it was another level that this book gave the character that is not something you necessarily would have thought of, but it, it makes so much sense when you think about this character as a whole. And I agree. I hope they really do continue with Tarkin. I, I mean, I would love to see this book actually end up being like the first part to a trilogy or a series, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the ongoing development of the Death Star. No, oh, that'd be great. I mean, there's so many angles that they could go from from here. You know, I mean, I, especially if they did add a plot where rebels came in and they kept the exhaust port secret or they're the ones that are like, hey, if we keep from putting on this last ratcheted thing, you know, like I would love to see something like that build up towards where we get to that point where he ends up passing away in A New Hope. I mean, I'd like to see something more in that regard. I think for me, when it comes to this book, I got more out of it on the reread, which is something I typically get with comics. And yeah, you will get that in general with any Star Wars book. But I think overall, when I'm reading a new Star Wars book in the new canon, especially right now where everything is so new, I don't want something that I have to reread to get the most out of it. I want something that I read it that first time and I'm like, oh my god, that was awesome. You know, I want a book like I Jedi or, or Star by Star or Traitor or Revenge of the Sith, you know, I want something that that every time I read it, it is awesome, not just the second times. And that's not to say that the book wasn't a good book, but it was one of those where there was just so much going on. There was so much from what I knew before that I was in that perplexed state where I was like, well, I want to be, you know, kind of open to everything. I want to be able to chew it and swallow it and get an idea for what's going on. But there's so much world building. And like Nathan was saying earlier, it wasn't necessarily world building, but because it is a new canon, it is, unfortunately, world building, but they picked a great author that can do it seamlessly. I mean, the Lucino effect worked out wonderfully in this regard and gave it that feel that the world building was done deliberately, which I don't really think it was. I think that was just James Lucino being James Lucino. His style of writing has always been thus, and that's why he's always been one of my favorite writers when it came to Legends. So seeing him in that regard be able to take what he does and it be a world building experience, that was cool. But again, it wasn't one of those books where I was like, yeah, go go grab that book right now and read it. You know, I mean, and that I think is my problem with most of the new books in canon right now. And I'm hoping that when we get to that journey to The Force Awakens, that that's going to be where we get to those books that everyone feels like you've got to read this book. You know, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. I read this book, as I said, three times, you know, because I knew you guys were asking me to discuss it with you and I wanted to make sure I was versed. But I don't think I'll go back to it. I, I can't foresee, unless they maybe bring out another book that directly ties to it, that I will go back to this book. It'll sit on my shelf and it'll look great with everything else, but 
it's not something that's going to draw me back in. Like for me, the, the Zahn trilogy did, which I will reread countless times because I, I enjoy it. And even though it doesn't fit in the current canon, and I'll leave it there, it's still something that is so engaging for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was a book that you know, I read it the one time and took the notes, went through it again, sort of speed reading, if you want to call that skimming, as I was putting it onto the timeline to make sure that I had all my facts straight and whatnot. I probably won't go back to it. Then again, there are very, very few Star Wars books I do go back to. That actually is part of why I kind of cringe sometimes when Mark talks about, you know, let's cover the new Jedi Order. I'm like, oh man, that's a lot of books to reread that I really wasn't feeling like rereading. Although, I'm totally open to it because I want to get us to the point where we read and do that with Legacy of the Force because I love that series. I'd love to reread that again. But generally, I don't go back and reread Star Wars books. So, to me, it's all about that first run through. It's all about what do we get out of it? What's the impact and should we be able to recommend it? And it, to me, the recommendation in a lot of ways goes back to what I used to do with From the Star Wars Library when I was doing that instead of the From the Star Wars Home Video Library thing, which was just, you know, is it an essential read, as I would always say? And this is definitely not. There are no essential reads yet in this new continuity. Is it a good book? I think so, yes. Is it great for world building, whether... You know, it was supposed to or not. I guess now we have the Stover effect and the Lucino effect. Stover being the background coming from something else to give you an appreciation of, of another source. I guess in this case, the Lucino effect building connective tissue like mad, even when it winds up being world building by accident. In that sense, it's great. And I think that if you like the character of Tarkin or if you are watching Rebels and want to get more out of the character of Tarkin, I think this is a cool book to read. But in that sense, it's a lot like a new dawn. It's background that's not necessarily essential, but it'll give you more of an understanding of one specific character that you hope that because this is all meant to be interconnected through the story group and all, might wind up actually paying some dividends in those other sources. I would say, though, that of the novels that we've gotten so far for this new continuity, A New Dawn, Tarkin, and Heir to the Jedi, I think I got more out of this one. I'm not sure if it was the most fun read, I'd say that's kind of tied between this and Heir to the Jedi, because I really like the first-person-style storytelling of Heir to the Jedi. I definitely got more out of it overall than of any of the other books, actually any of the other sources outside of maybe Rebels that we're getting in this new stuff, because certainly we're not getting much at all out of the Marvel comics yet. It's best in some respects out of what so far is a fairly limited gene pool. See, and the thing that really jumped out to me was one of the smallest little things, the first woe that you mentioned, the fact that the Jedi Temple was built on a Sith one. That's probably the thing I hope that they pick up with the most, whether we go back and we find out more about it in the past or if we go forward and and we explore it later in the future. That was the one thread that I really would love to see more out of, out of this story. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Jonathan, we'd like to thank you once again for coming on. Uh, If you have any contact information, now would be a good time to give it to the Beyonders out there. 
Well, thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure to be on here. And yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they can reach me at Jonathan, that's J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N, at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Or they can reach me through the Facebook page for Rebels Roundtable. And as always, a lot of fun, and I hope I get to come back and talk more with you guys some other time. Oh, you definitely will. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And speaking of past episodes, you can find them all at www.starwarsreport.com slash beyondthefilms. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or canon or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. And Jonathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we will start to see some actual epic stories in some of the new canon stuff other than Rebels. Ooh, I like the odds of that. Wait, or do I? Oh, I gotta get better at odds. What are the odds of that? Better ask the mouse. So again, if you are a listener of Republic, well, I almost said Republic Force Radio Network. Eh, no. So once wah, again, wah. yep. I mean, that's essentially what he did. It's a very harsh. It's a very, you know, dark way of, of uh, I guess, of what's the word I'm looking for? Of. Uh, Scaring the shit out of everyone? Well, yeah, but, I mean, a- as a way of, you know, keeping control, you know, keeping order. Hooks up with uh, the pilots who were part of this group at the, at the time, uh, a gotal named Salik. Good lord, can you guys hear that? What is that? Yes. Motherfucker upstairs is, like, hammering something now all of a sudden. <laughs> Same asshole who winds up smoking up the entire place with weed every so often so that our laundry room smells like the back of Cheech and Chong's car. <laughs> um, it makes sense they would all have grievances against the Empire, very much like any rebel group we tend to see, particularly in the RPG and whatnot. God, mother you stop the f***ing hammering, you stupid They all have their grievances against the Empire, at least everybody but Rancid. They all come together. It's very much like you would see in almost any Star Wars RPG group of rebels, pretty much. Sorry. <laughs> I tell you, th- we're cursed this weekend. And the problem is, I can't f- yell to tell them to knock it the f- off because Jody's asleep. Or I literally <laughs> would yell, knock it the f- off at the ceiling.
You're all like banging it with a broom. <laughs> no, you can have a heart attack. Then they'll make a whole Friends episode about you. That's all right. That's all right. Just it just the next time I put together a new bookshelf and I'm having to hammer it in the back room, it will be at three o'clock in the f-ing morning. Okay, I got a sixteen-inch subwoofer that I love to play ICP is really loud. <laughs> there you go. Okay, let me say this again. Um, what was I saying? What was I saying? What was I saying? Um. Well, Jonathan, I'd like to answer you, but the mother won't stop hammering. Um, <clears throat> let's see if I can fit this in and have to stop during the damn hammering. See, what you're getting at, Jonathan, though, that is where I was heading with these something else about Tarkin that bothered me that we needed the background of these people for. Oh, come on! He's building a goat fence. Building a case for that kicking up balls. You know, Tarkin's ship, the Carrion Spike, got kidnapped. Kidnapped. <laughs> it, got, it got jacked. <laughs> ship jacked. Bring me back. <laughs> he needs a better alarm system. That's yes. Bad. And who names her child Carrion? Wow, what an a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you missed all that then? No, I heard it. Oh, okay. Because if you didn't have anything to chime in, I'd just do a quick thing. But nice. I think the Nate whole... not have something to chime in on? Please. <laughs> <laughs> the only time you really see that in depth tends to be in the novels. So I really like, and I'm hearing somebody breathing like Vader-esque into the microphone. I'm muted, so... I'm <laughs> I muted, thought it was not me. me. What the not hell me. am I hearing then? Oh, nope, sorry, it's my cat behind me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's kitty. It's... <laughs> nah, it's, it's the other cat, the one that doesn't meow, but the one who, like, has serious <laughs> allergy issues, so he snores and he, like, breathes with a Vader-esque hiss and sometimes a bubble of snot, like, going in and out of his nose as he's breathing. Kind of creepy. Okay, let's try this again. Okay. What was I even saying? Oh, I gotta get better at odds. What are the odds of that? Better ask the mouse. He said better ask the mouse. I could have sworn being a clerk's fan, he said better ask the mouse. I was like, oh, f- <laughs> What did you say? <laughs> Do you want me to enunciate that a little bit better? <laughs> no, you're okay. You're okay. They just gotta go, better ask the mouse. <laughs> yeah.